Great singing. Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 4, or you can read it right there in the bulletin. It would be good to have a Bible open because we're going to look at some other passages as well, even though it's a different translation in the pew. But Hosea 4, we'll read the whole chapter today, only looking at the first 14 verses and take up the rest of it next week. The question in the bulletin, or the question of the title is, what is God's will? It is a question that many of us ask. What is God's will for me? What does He want me to do? Well, you know, this week I was talking to a friend of mine who's a campus minister, a campus pastor in another uh, city, and I asked him, what are the questions that college students are asking today? And he said, it's probably not the ones you're anticipating. It's not what is God's will for me, or who is God, or is there a God, or how does the Bible interact with science, or what is the Bible's sexual ethic, or what is, what is my next step in life, or who am I supposed to marry? Those are all questions in due time, but the primary question I'm being asked, he said, is this, is God good? I said, it's the same question I'm being asked too. Is God good? By people who believe the Bible, who believe that Jesus is the Savior, but the question can still come, is God good? Given what I experience in myself, given what I'm experiencing in my city, what is going on around the world, the suffering, the violence, the disappointments, can God possibly be all that He says He is in the Bible and good given what we experience in our world? Hosea answers that question. If anybody answers it thoroughly, it's the prophet Hosea. It'll surprise you in this text and in the rest of the book, but pay attention to God's Word and listen. Listen for the good news of the gospel. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There's only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea are swept away. But let no one bring a charge, let no one accuse another, for your people are like those who bring charges against a priest. You stumble day and night, the prophets stumble with you, so I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I also reject you as my priests because you have ignored the law of your God. I also will ignore your children." The more priests there were, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. They feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness. And it will be like people, like priests. I'll punish both of them for their ways. 
repay them for their deeds. They will eat but not have enough. They will engage in prostitution but not flourish because they have deserted the Lord to give themselves to prostitution. Old wine and new wine take away their understanding. My people, consult a wooden idol and a diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops. They burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth where the shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters turn to prostitution, your daughters-in-law to adultery. I'll not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution, nor your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery, because the men themselves consort with harlots and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes. A people without understanding will come to ruin. Though you, Israel, commit adultery, don't let Judah become guilty. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not go up to Beth-Avon. And do not swear as surely as the Lord lives. The Israelites are stubborn like a stubborn heifer. How then can the Lord pasture them like lambs in a meadow? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Even when their drinks are gone, they continue their prostitution. Their rulers dearly love shameful ways. A whirlwind will sweep them away, and their sacrifices will bring them shame. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Open our eyes, O Lord, to the truth of who we are within, that we might retell the gospel to one another and hear it afresh in this passage and this book. Drive us with hunger and thirst to the Lord's table today. In Jesus' name we pray, God's people said together, amen. If you're just joining us, we've been studying this book of Hosea, this prophet that prophesied about 700 years before the coming of Christ. And Hosea was called to marry a woman named Gomer in the north in Israel who was originally chaste. But then came the day when she didn't get what she wanted. She didn't get uh, the uh, jewelry and the clothes and, and the recognition. And she didn't like uh, what was going on at church. And so she decided to trade sexual favors for all those material and temporal things. And as we've studied, we've seen how the Lord has compared what Hosea went through in the heartbreak of his marriage to what, uh, what the people of God are prone to do in their relationship with the Lord. And yet, the Lord told Hosea to go after his wife. Even while she was still a prostitute, go after her, buy her back. Even if she doesn't want you again, before she loves you back, bring her back as I will pursue Israel, my people, through the Lord Jesus. Sometimes we fail to recognize how transformative that message of hope is, the hope of God's compassion. A number of years ago, I read this interview, I read an interview with Joss Whedon, a screenwriter and a producer of films like Toy Story and The Avengers and Buffy and so forth. 
Joss Whedon was a phenom. He was, he was greatly admired. Some people called it the Joss Whedon cult. He was so admired more recently in the last couple of years. His life has completely melted down. And this interview that he gave with um, a news agency was rather prophetic of what would happen in his life. He was asked by the interviewer, do you think that the human race is getting smarter and better? He answered, I think we're actually getting stupider and more petty. What's going on in this country, in many countries, is beyond depressing. It's terrifying. Sometimes I have to remember who I'm talking to. I'll say something about how terrible things are and meaningless, and the world is headed toward destruction and war and apocalypse, and at some point my daughter goes, hey, I'm only eight years old. She doesn't want to hear that stuff. But I can't believe anybody thinks we're actually going to make it before we destroy the planet. I honestly think it's inevitable. I have no hope. I want to be wrong. More than anything, I want to be wrong. I hate to say it, but it's like that line from the Lord of the Rings. I give hope to men, but I keep none for myself. We don't condemn and look down on a person who expresses that as if we as Christians have come to our conclusion that God is compassionate and that there's hope in the gospel on our own. It's only because Jesus has sought and found us. We pray for someone like that, or we pray perhaps for you today. Maybe you haven't put your hope in Jesus Christ. Maybe you have put your hope in Jesus Christ. You've forgotten that hope, and you're despairing too. And it's to you that a passage like this is addressed, that a book like this is addressed. Because it is recognizing, it is in recognizing how bad the bad news is without Christ. It's only by recognizing how bad that bad news is that you can embrace with hope how good the good news is. I want you to notice in verse 1, God brings three charges against the people of Israel, and He could do the same to our world today. At the end of verse 1, He says there are three problems. There is no faithfulness, there is no love, and there is no acknowledgement of God in the land. Now, today we take up the first two. Next week we take up the third. Today we take up this, this tragedy that there is no faithfulness and there is no love and ask, is it possible, is it possible to believe in a faithful and loving God by knowing Him? Is it possible by getting to know Him that we really do believe that God is good? Well, we start with this word, this word faithfulness, in Hebrew is emet, and uh, some theologians, one Old Testament scholar says, here's how you can define emet as it is applied to human beings. It denotes the nature of a person who is said to be faithful, who is true in speech, and who is constant and reliable in all his or her actions. 
Now, God says, here's the proof, here's the reason, here's the, the evidence that there is no faithfulness in the land. It's in verse 2. There is only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery. These five things, cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery. That is what these people are characterized by. So you look at that text, you, perhaps you do that quick survey of those five of the Ten Commandments, and you say, well, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. If you're grading on a curve, I'm, uh, I don't curse, I don't even say darn, I don't lie, I don't murder, I haven't stolen anything lately, and I haven't committed adultery. But is that true? You know, in the back of our hymnal, page 733, we have a copy of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Here's a little copy I carry around with me. You can get a little one like this in the bookstore. The Shorter Catechism isn't the Bible, but it's a summary of biblical doctrine. And one of its uh, brilliant uh, aspects is that it breaks down each of the Ten Commandments. And it asks, what, is, what are the duties required in the First Commandment? And what are the What are the sins forbidden in the first commandment? It takes all of the biblical data, all of the insights that the Scripture provides as it unpacks that biblical ethic of the Ten Commandments in various implications throughout the Bible, takes it all, puts it in one place, and says, here are the sins forbidden, here are the duties prescribed. So let's ask, let's survey these five commandments using the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism and, and see how we score on keeping each of these commandments. Cursing is typically taken up under the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. What are the, what are the, the duties prescribed, required by the fifth commandment, the catechism asks? And the answer is preserving the honor and performing the duties belonging to everyone in their several places and relations as superiors, inferiors, or equals. Here's how you can summarize that. To keep the fifth commandment, that is to do the opposite of cursing, is to proactively preserve the honor of every human being, whether it's your boss, whether it's your wife, whether it's your children, whether it's your employee, whether it's your friend. Whether it's your enemy, it is to preserve the honor of one who bears the image of God. To do anything less is to curse that person. What about the ninth commandment? Thou shalt not bear false witness. What is forbidden in the, by the ninth commandment, the catechism asks, whatsoever is prejudicial to the truth or injurious to our own or our neighbor's good name. It is proactively to pursue the good name of our neighbor, whether they are present or not, whether they are able to defend themselves or not, whether they deserve it or not. You know how we hurt our neighbor's good name. In evangelical Christianity, the way, we, the way we spread gossip is we don't gossip, we share prayer requests, right? I don't know if you've heard about brother so-and-so, but uh, I just want you to know this so you can pray for him. I just want you to know this so you can pray for her. And don't share it with more than six other people. 
to sin against the ninth commandment. And what about stealing? The eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. What is not just prohibited in the ninth, in the eighth commandment, what is proactively prescribed of the eighth commandment? It is the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves. We like that. And others. The faithful procuring and furthering the weight, the wealth of others. To do anything less is to steal. What about the seventh commandment? Thou shalt not commit adultery. The preserving of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart and speech and behavior. It is to confess our heart's desires. It is to avoid emotional affairs. It is not to sext. It is not to look at obviously tempting things. Now how are you feeling about yourself? Would anyone like to protest that this is not applied to them, that there is no faithfulness? We've only gotten through five commandments. We can keep going. Is anyone able to stand before God and say, I am faithful, so teach me something new? To be unfaithful, to be anything less than the pure faithfulness of God, the pure faithfulness of Jesus Christ who kept every commandment is to be unfaithful and therefore to jeopardize, to forfeit redemption. What is the hope? Well, remember, Hosea probably preached all of this at one time. He didn't take multiple weeks to split up his prophecy. All of this prophecy came as one package, and we've studied already the answer to this question. If you have your Bibles open, look at Hosea chapter 2, verse 14, where Hosea, when God is is, uh, describing what Hosea is going to do relative to Gomer and comparing it to what God is going to do toward his people. Therefore, chapter 2, verse 14, I am now going to allure her. Therefore, after what? After she has forsaken me, sold herself into prostitution, after she's turned her back on me, squandered all my gifts and refused to give thanks to me, I am going to allure her. I'm going to go after her. I'm going to lead her into the desert. I'm going to speak tenderly to her. Now, I'm going to take away all of her stuff. I'm going to give her the gift of defeat. I'm going to discipline. I'm going to chastise. I'm going to bring difficulty into her life so that she's forced to look to me. But that will be the process of my alluring her back to me. And when she comes back, verse 15, I'll give her back vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. She will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. Later he says in in verse 20, I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. 
You say, I am unfaithful. I don't measure up to any of these commandments. I don't measure up to any of the other commandments. And in fact, I've sinned so far, I don't think there's any hope for me. How is there any hope for me to be faithful? Is there some methodology? Is there some uh, self-help program? No. The answer is what every kid up here knows anytime they're asked a question. Jesus, you turn first to him. Yes, you must be faithful. You must keep the commandments, but you're only going to do so as you turn to Jesus, the one who has fulfilled all the commandments, the one who has sent his spirit to enable you to do what you must. That's when you recognize how good the good news is. What's the second problem? There's no love. Now, we've already understood, if you've heard the theme from these, these, um, these uh, expositions of the five commandments, you've heard a theme, haven't you? That to be faithful is to pursue the flourishing of other people. To be faithful is to consider everyone more important than yourself. That's love. That's faithful love. That's loving faithfulness. That's imitation of the loving kindness of God. The word is hesed. A word that we can't translate very well into English. We only have love. But God says when Moses asked him, what, uh, show me your glory, show me who you are. In your essence, he said, I'm the Lord, the Lord compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and mercy. One Old Testament scholar said, loving kindness is this. Loving kindness is a descriptor of a love that, no, that, that can't be explained humanly. It's always surprising. It's unexpected. It's over the top. It's not required. It goes the extra mile. That's the loving kindness of God. The love of God who so loved us that he gave his son, sent his son to be a sacrifice for our sins. Well, how do we know? We had evidence in the first uh, the first uh, a, a charge of no faithfulness, we had the evidence. Here are the five sins they are committing openly. What, are, what, what is the evidence that there is no love among the Israelites? No love for God and the explanation for why there's not love for their neighbor, especially the vulnerable and the pure. What is the evidence? Is in verses 3 to 14. Really, it's in the rest of the book. It begins with this, because my people are not worshiping. Here's the number one evidence for why my people, to prove that my people don't love me. And it's the explanation for why they're not loving their neighbor. It's because they're not worshiping. They're not truly worshiping. They may be sitting in church, but they're not worshiping me. Verses 4, 6, 12, 14, all says the same thing. Verse 14 or verse uh, uh, 12, uh, I'll take away the 
Uh, I'll, I'll take away the, uh, they consult a wooden idol. Uh, and they're answered by a stick of wood. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They're unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops. He's describing pagan worship. He's also describing the kind of worship they're bringing into the temple. They're mixing up adultery and materialism and self-indulgence with worship. They've, they've crafted gods that don't make them uncomfortable. They've crafted gods that, that fit with what they want to hear. They've crafted gods, even the priests have, crafted gods that don't challenge the people, that, 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 that trend along with what is popular in their subculture. They don't love me, it's proven, but they don't worship me. Could it be true of us? Could it be true that even though God has given us seven days of of provision for six days of labor, and he asked, and, and on one day, I want you to bookend morning and evening by giving me praise. And even in that day, I will expedite your sanctification. I will, I will form you into the likeness of my son. I will expedite and particularly encourage you. I'll give you concentrated doses of the gospel by word and sacrament. On that one day, why is it that anything can trump that day? Why is it that anything, even though we have six other days, why is it that anything can trump that day? The house in the mountains or house of the beach, it's a, it's a, it's a travel sport or it's, a, it's just I, don't, I have a sore toe or I, I just don't feel like it or, or there are other friends doing other things or this is my chance to travel. Anything, anything, almost anything can trump the Lord's day. And we wonder why we were so ill-formed for something like a pandemic and why we're so ill-formed to face the, the pressures of our culture. The Lord says, I want you to come to me on this day. He doesn't say, I'm going to get you if you don't. It's the indication of how present the cross of Christ is to us. The remembrance, the constant remembrance that God so loved me. He gave his only begotten son. How could I be any other place? And I want you to notice he's hardest. He's hardest in these, this passage on the pastors. He says, uh, you're lacking in your love for me because your pastors are not preaching the truth. Verse 4, let no man bring a charge, let no man accuse. Your people are those who bring charges against a priest. By their lives they expose who is preaching to them. Verse 8, these are ones who have pursued greed or the praise of men by just preaching what people want to hear, preaching to avoid the, the, the email or the the gossip or the criticism, verses 6 and 7, it's following the popular trends or following what makes people happy and they want to hear, verses 6 and 7. 
And the result is this, it's tragic. It says when pastors fail to teach the whole counsel of God, then they lead their church into death. That's what he means by, I will kill your mother, I'll destroy your mother, not your, your mama, but your church. And then furthermore, he says in verse 14, this is the way it's going to come out also. It's going to come out among the men. When the pastors are not leading, when the pastors are not preaching and worship is not foremost in the community, men fail to lead. They fail to lead in their families. They fail to lead in their relationships. They fail to protect. They fail to lead in chastity and so forth. I'm not going to blame the women. He said, I'm going to blame the men. For not providing protection, not leading spiritually, not providing protection and example for the women of their congregation or the women in their home or their family or in their friend group, but passively allowing life to go by. Let the women do it. Objectifying women and just taking rather than giving. And then he says, when pastors don't preach the word, the whole counsel of God and the people of God don't live in love in response to that grace and worship him in all things. Verse 3, the land itself will mourn, beasts of the field, birds of the air, fish of the sea will die. That's not flowery language, it's literal. When the people of God are being formed by the gospel, this is proven in history, people of God are being formed by the gospel, they become stewards of creation. They become givers, not takers. The whole world, the environment around them prospers when people are living in the gospel. Let's just, it's really simple. When people are being compassionate, It all begins in worship. What hope is there for us? Well, look back at chapter 2. Maybe we've already forgotten it. Chapter 2, verse 16. He goes on to say, Hosea says, uh, quoting the Lord about what Hosea should do toward Gomer and what God is going to do toward his people. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You'll no longer call me my master. I'll remove the names of the Baals from their lips and no longer their names be invoked. I'm going to, I'm going to change their worship. In that day, I'll make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, of birds of the air, life around them. Even creaturely life is going to improve the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land. I'll betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I'll betroth you in faithfulness. You will acknowledge the Lord. All the way in the back of the book, here's a spoiler alert, chapter 14. God says these people will eventually come around. That's who we are. God, through Jesus Christ, who is 
called David in this book in chapter 3, verse 5. God, through Jesus Christ, will continue to pursue us, and he will turn his people back to him. And they will say in chapter 14, verse 3, for in you, Lord, the fatherless, find compassion. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. What's the answer to a lack of love? It is to return to the Father who is compassionate, who has a love for the fatherless, is to quit living like an orphan, quit living as a prostitute. It is to turn back to the only Father who loves you, to love the one who is compassionate toward the fatherless and the one who will love you freely. It's to do it the first time is to do it the thousandth time. I was getting to know a new friend this week who's a pastor. We're sharing our testimonies with each other. He said he grew up in a Christian home, grew up in a, a sound Presbyterian church. He was in youth group. He was at a Christian school. When he was in junior high, he got a laptop computer, the equivalent of a smartphone today. Without any guidelines, he went to all the wrong places. It took hold of his life. He, he engaged in that in shame, literally in his closet. Nobody knew. Everybody thought he was the good church kid on the outside. And then one day he got caught. He was miserable uh, before that, and he kept asking God to take it away, and he was challenged with whether or not God was good. Why did, if he's good, why didn't he take this away from me? He didn't recognize that God was good when he f- let him get caught. His parents confronted him, and then his parents sent him to his pastor. The pastor asked him, what's going on? He sort of came clean, told him a little bit, expected to shock the pastor. And the pastor said, do you know God loves you? He's proven that in Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah? Well, here's what else I did. Do you know God still loves you? He's proven it in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Yeah, well, what about this? And this? And that? He went on and on. Pastor's answer was the same God loves you. He's proven it in Christ. He said, eventually that broke through to me, it set me free. He now knows it's what the Old preachers called the expulsive power of a new affection. It's the giving of, a, of a greater affection that drives out an old affection. And he said, I was so happy about it. I ran through the halls of my Christian school and I said, God loves me. God loves you. They all thought I was crazy. But I was set free. Years went by. He went on to college, continued to grow in his faith. 
the end of college, he was wondering what he should do. He had one plan to go in one direction, and that was cut short. So one day his pastor was visiting him. He had gone to the hospital. He had an injury. And the pastor visited him. He said, what do you do? What do you do in your work? He said, I read the Bible. I learn how God loves us, and I share the implications of it with God's people. I want to do that. That's what he does. It's not really profound, is it? What's the secret to faithfulness? What's the secret to loving your neighbor and God? It's to be transformed first by coming to grips at just how bad off we are and turning in desperation from that to a compassionate Father whose love will transform you. The Lord's Supper is a powerful incentive, a catalyst for sealing to your mind and heart that God's love in Jesus Christ is as real as the scent of that cup and the taste of this bread. God is good. He's proven it in Christ.